Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. We are here today with Chris Schaffner. He's a grant coordinator uh, with the Human Service Center and a longtime drug and alcohol counselor. And we are talking about a $678,000 federal grant that the Human Service Center got late last summer to do opioid education and to distribute naloxone, uh, the, the antidote for opioid overdose, to um, first responders and members of the general community um, in 38 counties in Illinois. That was a huge, big deal. This is a big grant for you guys, isn't it? It was significant for the Human Service Center to be a part of this program. And why is that? It gives us a great opportunity to just make a huge impact in the state. Uh, I have a lot of trust and faith in our organization as well that, that we're equipped to do it. Uh, but then to have the passion, the desire to see the direct impact of the opioid crisis in our community and throughout the state and then to be a part of the addressing that mm-hmm. um, is an honor. Okay. Well, this is a two-prong thing. It's it's to distribute naloxone, which can bring someone back immediately from an overdose, overdose of an opioid, right? But it's also to, it's got an educational component to, to teach people, um, a lot of people who really don't know a lot about the opioid epidemic about it. Let's talk first about naloxone. What, what does naloxone do and why is it important? When an individual consumes too many opiates, it shuts down their, their central nervous system, their respiratory system, and they, they stop breathing. Okay. Naloxone is an antagonist medication to opioids, and so it will reverse uh, the effects of that and restart respiratory functioning if the medication is given to somebody in enough time. Okay. So basically, what happens to someone when they die of an opioid overdose? Sure. We get a lot of our images from Pulp Fiction and popular media, and it doesn't really look anything like that. Generally speaking, it's just the brain starts to slow down uh, the breathing and the blood circulation. So the heart rate just stops and the breathing slows down and stops. The body's deprived of oxygen. Uh, and there's no perfusion of blood any longer. And it's just a slow, often quiet death. It's not dramatic and grandiose. There's typically not seizing and vomiting that's occurring. It can happen. It's just somebody tends to go to sleep. They're okay. sedated and they go to sleep and they don't wake up. So when you give someone a shot of naloxone and you can give it either through the nose or as a spray or, or with a shot, Correct. it just immediately stops that? It depends on the dose. Okay. Uh, and and the and the amount of um, of illicit drug that they have in their system mm-hmm. depends on the individual. Um, we've had reports of more doses of naloxone required because of the synthetic drugs like fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, what it does, it goes into the system, and if if you get the right dose in the right amount of time. Within about 60 seconds, the person starts to wake up. The 60 seconds. 60 seconds. The individual's respiratory functioning is restored, and they kind of come out of it. They're a little groggy, uh, a little confused, mm-hmm. maybe a little upset, because mm-hmm. now they're, they know what's coming, which is the onset of significant withdrawals. Okay. So they go immediately into withdrawals as if they hadn't been using anything at all. Okay. And those withdrawals 
are so potent and powerful. It's often what drives the recurrent drug use. Okay. So if you to give someone a dose of naloxone um, and they wake up and that's great, but there's some aftercare that's, that, that is really necessary. And of course the person can refuse it, but you do try to do what? We try to encourage them to do what they can to disrupt the substance use pattern in their life. So whether that means going to detox or seeking medical care to make sure that the individual doesn't slip into another overdose, if somebody's in withdrawal, um, they're very likely, their brain is conditioned to want to use more drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it makes sense that they would try to maybe leave the scene and go, um, what they would say is just more cops, more dope, um, to avoid the withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Not even really at this point about being high. It's about not being sick so I can function sick. normally. Right. Because it makes them deathly ill. Correct. Okay. So so if you if you do administer a shot, it's important to try and get that person to the hospital. Yes. Right? Yes. For observation. Okay. Yes. The the naloxone will wear off in about an hour to ninety minutes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a very long uh half life. Mm-hmm. And so if it also doesn't make the opiates go away in the brain, it just kicks them out of the receptors. So they just tend to float around in the brain. If the naloxone wears off, those opiates have a potential to resettle in the receptors again, okay. stimulating another potential overdose okay. crisis. Okay. And if they use on top of that, now they've just doubled the dose of opiate they have in their system, which increases the likelihood of overdose of as being, well. Of being fatal. Correct. Yes. Okay. So these are all things that you teach people when you give out these little red kits. Mm-hmm. They've got Correct. three doses. Three doses are important because with the fentanyls and the carfentanyls, they're so strong Sometimes you have to give three doses to get someone back. Correct. And that's why these these packets contain three doses. We used to stock them with two that seemed to be uh, effective mm-hmm. for most people. And usually by the time a first responder arrives on scene, it's usually five to ten minutes. And so you had enough time uh, with just two doses before somebody showed up on scene. But now with the synthetic opiates like fentanyl and the carfentanyl, which can be anywhere from 50 to 100 times more powerful than street heroin or morphine, um, it's important to have extra doses handy okay. um, because they're not. there's this myth out there that the synthetic uh, opioids are Narcan resistant, and that's not the case. They're just more potent, they're so they require stronger. more naloxone. Well, I've, I've heard, too, that the, the, um, the, the upping of the fight against opioids in, in Illinois, which really began late last summer, um, when this grant came through and when the standing order uh, was given by the governor's office to um, for pharmacies to just give out naloxone without a prescription and for you guys to be able to distribute it to the general public, um, a lot of it is a reaction to the synthetics in, in the heroin uh, that people are getting on the street. People don't always know what they're getting. Correct me if I'm wrong in any of this. People don't always know what they're getting, and um, some of these synthetics are awful. Carfentanil was actually created to be an elephant tranquilizer. A large animal tranquilizer. I mean, it's, you know, and just a tiny few specks of this can kill a person very quickly. So that's why it's important to have this naloxone out there in case somebody does something, gets some of this, doesn't know it, and overdoses. You can bring them back. Correct. We're in what... what Experts are calling the third wave of the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Back in the 90s, we saw uh, a saturation of prescription narcotics. There were pill mills and lots of other factors that contributed to the surplus of prescription narcotics being handed out across the country. Uh, and then that's not really a sustainable pattern of behavior. The 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 amount of energy and time and resources to, to sustain a prescription narcotic addiction is is a 
it requires a lot. You got a, a lot of doctor shopping, a lot of uh, prescriptions, and a lot of money, investment, and time, and hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so about 2010, we saw a surge of, of a more potent heroin coming into our country. And so people made the jump from prescription narcotics to what they call the second wave of the opioid crisis, which was a, uh, a resurgence of heroin in our country. Okay. Um, and you can track the data and you can see that about 2010, heroin overdoses started to skyrocket. Um, but again, that's not sustainable. And as time goes on, the need for higher doses because of tolerance, um, uh, chasing a, a, a different outcome because of the tolerance that sets into the brain when using a drug repeatedly. Then we have the uh, the saturation of the third wave, which are the synthetic opiates. Okay. Um, and so it's raised the bar to a whole nother level for what people need in the brain. It's not even what they want necessarily. It's what they need as their body develops tolerance. Okay. And that's significantly more lethal. And we're finding it to come up in cocaine um here in Peoria recently, yes, which right, surprised which people. people didn't expect and, and caused a wave of, of deaths. Correct. Yes. Um, so that's interesting that you, you develop this tolerance in your brain and you need something stronger. And so these, these synthetics are stronger and people want that. Correct. But they can't always handle it. They don't always know what they're getting. Right. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about the second prong um, of the $678,000 grant, mm-hmm. which you might get another one. You're going to get another one next yes. year, for sure, uh, to continue the work that you've started. But the second prong, which is um, maybe even more important than distributing the naloxone, is the education. Yeah. And you and another educator, Sue Tisdale, are going out into the community in in a huge. I mean, you're going all the. Are you going all the way up to Joe Davies counties, or do you have private yeah. contractors doing that? So we have three subcontractors. We work with Mississippi, Robert Young, and Chestnut, and they cover portion certain counties in those areas. Mm-hmm. We cover directly about 15 counties here okay. in Central Illinois. Okay. That Sue and I do primary. We're the primary educators in those counties. Okay, and then the other counties have been distributed among those subcontractors, and there's there's staff in those regions that are covering that as well. Okay. And you're working with the Jolt Foundation as well. That's correct. And what what are they doing? What's their part? So Dr. Old has just been the she's been the pioneer regarding harm reduction in this area. Okay. Uh, she started the naloxone distribution program after her son Joshua passed away. Okay. She's been uh, single handedly supplying naloxone to this area um, herself uh, for the last four or five years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she has been a, a natural, we've been partnering with her at the human service center has. And so it made sense to remain partners through this grant. Okay. She uh, often, um, we work hand in hand in conjunction with her and she supports our efforts and we support her efforts. And she's a partner in this grant with us. Okay. Okay. Now, what do you do when you go out and you do this education? First of all, what what kind of places do you go to? Oh, so we go everywhere. We cover all the sectors within a community. Mm-hmm. Now, we go to urban settings. We go to suburban settings. We go to rural communities. We are in social service organizations. We're in churches. We're in uh, health departments. We do town hall meetings in a variety of settings. Uh, if, if they'll have us, we'll go there. Okay. Uh, and if it's one or two people or it's 60 or 70 or 100, 200 people, we'll go and we'll share. So when we go there, we often do both of those things in tandem. We'll have an opportunity for people to get naloxone and be trained to use the naloxone. But I think I shared this with you in another conversation was that that is often just a stop the bleeding tactic. It's an essential one. It's necessary because people who have died cannot get the help that they need. Right. So we've got to keep people alive and 
long enough for them to get in treatment where there's often long treatment waits to get in. Right. But a much more important thing is changing cultural attitudes and helping them understand the complexity of the opioid crisis and substance abuse and substance use dependency issues. Mm-hmm. Um, the changes in the brain really make it a medical issue. Um, there might have been a time early on in someone's substance use history uh, that maybe they made some choices. There were probably a lot of other factors besides I just feel like getting high that drove that. Mm-hmm. But at some point, we cross this tipping point where we lose the power of choice because the brain structure has changed so significantly mm-hmm. that now I'm a slave to that. And you talk about that when you go when you do these we community do. educations, um, and and it, it it's it's an effort to remove stigma, right? Because a lot of people, until you have a loved one who is affected by this, you don't understand what's happening. And traditionally. Traditionally, we've looked at the addict like it was the addict's fault, but new, you know, this new information and modern science has has made it made people understand, made experts understand that they don't have a choice after you reach a certain point. Correct. And how long does it take a person to get to that point? So with opioids, it can happen in just a few short months. Really? Yes. It's such a powerful medication, and the 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 opioids mimic almost perfectly. Uh, indigenous neurochemicals that are in our brain. So the body has very little resistance against opioids, uh, which is different than some other drugs of abuse. That is different. Uh, it doesn't recognize it as a foreign substance. It doesn't realize it doesn't belong there. So it just says, back that truck up and give me everything you got. They're, they're sort of replacing endorphins. Correct. Which are the, the, the chemicals in our brain that, that make us feel good. That keep you from being depressed, mm-hmm. that, that give you satisfaction with the everyday things that yeah. you do, right? Energy and, so, and pain management. Okay. Yep. And the opi- opioids start to replace that. Your body start, stops producing those. Yes. And it gets progressively worse as the addiction continues. Yes. So let's imagine that you have 10 dopamine receptors in your brain. And so you discover that 10 Vicodin will satisfy those opioid receptors because they're hungry for them. They're required for normal functioning. Mm -hmm. So you take that over a period of time, but your brain then will become accustomed to those 10 and it will start to need more to get the desired effect to to manage pain and to have a stable mood and have energy just to get out of bed. So now it says I need 15, but the brain only has 10 receptors to accommodate that. So what the brain does is it just grows five more receptors. And so now that 15 have a home inside the brain. But after a period of time, 15 doesn't cut it. The brain develops tolerance and needs more. And so it says, I need 20, but there's only 15 receptors in the brain. So it grows another five to accommodate the need for more. And that's how tolerance works. And so play that out 10 or 15 years of substance use. You've literally got tens of thousands of starving opioid receptors that require being satisfied just to function normally. True crime lovers are always looking for new and engaging content. The Already Gone podcast covers stories from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Cases you haven't heard before, like the Mayo Hunters or the murder of 16-year-old Justin Mello, plus better-known cases like the death of Jane Bashara and Illinois' own Lori Dan. Already Gone started in 2016, so there is a big back catalog for you to enjoy. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your favorite podcatcher. When you stop, when you go into treatment, when you stop, I know people use methadone and suboxone Mm -hmm. to help with this. Do you ever get to the point 
I mean, can you lose those opioid receptors in, in the brain? Can you lose those? Or, or are you like forever changed? Yeah. So that varies from person to person. Okay. And it's based on a lot of variables. But generally speaking, the way the, the brain's neural wiring works is, is you lose it or you, or you use it or you lose it. So if you can deprive them enough, they will start to prune themselves away. The problem with that, though, is the accompanying reward for high doses of opioids is so significant that the brain won't ever forget it. You know, if you if you eat chocolate, your brain's going to produce some pleasure, and you're going to be like, "Hey, that's great." Mm-hmm. And if you go work out at the gym, your brain's going to produce those neurochemicals as well, and you're going to feel really good about it. Mm-hmm. If you engage in sexual activity, your brain will produce high quantities of these opioids. They're these indigenous endorphins. endorphins. Yes, um, and that was really supposed to be the highest level of pleasure we experience as humans. Mm-hmm. But when you take an opioid or you misuse it mm-hmm. uh, in a way that wasn't intended, you go from like experiencing this level of pleasure with through sexual activity to something that's 10 times more or 100 times more powerful than that. So that leaves a permanent imprint on the brain. And so while you can reduce the number of neuro wiring or neurotransmitters in your brain that need opioids, mm-hmm. there's a part of your brain that will never forget what that was How like. How good that felt. Which is always like a call to come back to it. Okay. So most individuals can recover from that. They can learn to engage life in a, in a different way or in an old way prior to opioid use. Okay. And they can live a life that's functional and normal, uh, and you would never know uh, that anything had happened. For some individuals, again, based on a lot of factors, age, health, uh, individual life circumstances, and all that, some people may require medication to help produce the necessary chemicals just to get up and function normally. Mm. Is why we call it a maintenance program. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand there's controversy around that. Mm-hmm. I, I do. I mean, we're not blind to that idea. But what I've seen that doesn't often get public attention um, are the people in your neighborhood that are on methadone that you don't even know about right. because they're living like, like quote, normal people right. do. Right. They've got a job. They take care of their kids. They mow their yarn. Right. They put up their Christmas lights. Right. They say hi to you as you're backing out of the driveway every morning. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the benefit of that, and they they depend on those medications to help the brain function normally mm-hmm, again. Mm-hmm. Well, it, when you when you talk about that too, I think a lot of people who haven't been um, affected in a close way by the opioid epidemic, they think of that person they saw on TV who was brought back from an overdose while lying on a street mm-hmm. corner, and of course, people do reach that point. But there are a lot of people in our community who maybe started taking opioids for a legitimate medical problem, since this is something your doctor could prescribe. They took them for too long. They, you know, it became a problem for them. And now they, they, they had to switch to street drugs because it's cheaper and easier to get them. Yep. And they, and they're doing it not necessarily to get high, but just to function, just to go to work every day and to take their kids to school. And so when you talk about, Erasing stigma when you realize that your neighbor down the street who you see every day and you wave to and your kids go to school with is fighting this. Yeah. You know, SAMHSA reports that 80% of new heroin users started with a legitimate prescription of opioids. 80%. 80%. That's huge. That's a huge number. Um, and the stigma surrounding often the reason there's a stigma is because we look at the behavior on the surface. And if we're honest, that behavior is hurtful to many people mm-hmm. it, it, to watch loved ones hurt themselves the way they do, mm-hmm. but then to be the victim of, of theft or crime or um, uh, emotional, physical, verbal abuse. Um, 
I, I understand why people feel so hurt and angry about the individual that is using illicit drugs like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. But to understand there's something else that's driving this mm-hmm. beyond just this person's a jerk or they're antisocial mm-hmm. or whatever. There's there's a biochemical, there's a neurological, there's a physiological component that largely drives this. Mm-hmm. We have to understand that because then in those behaviors or symptoms of an underlying problem that if treated appropriately mm-hmm. and effectively, well, they'll diminish in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, it, when you talk about chemicals in the brain, that's like mental illness. And for many years, mental illness had a lot of stigma too. I think that that has finally changed um, or, you know, is a lot better than it used to be, right? But when you're talking about drug abuse, that's chemicals in the brain too. Yes. Uh, and I don't think we've, as a, as, a, as a society, have gotten to the point yet um, where we understand that, but this is an effort to help people realize that it's, it's a chemical issue. It's a brain-based illness. When I share that component during our educational pieces, I have rarely had anybody not be impacted by the science of this addiction. Mm-hmm. To share that and disseminate that information to the general public, they always almost always and almost universally come up to me and say, I never knew that. That makes all the difference in the world. I didn't realize this was happening. I didn't realize the endorphins. I didn't realize tolerance. I didn't understand how that worked. So to be able to explain it to them in a way that they can understand instantly generates empathy and compassion. Yes. Doesn't make it easier to deal with. Right. It just gives them a different framework for understanding it. And they can be more proactive in, in, in working with their loved one. Right. And then, too, when you reduce the stigma, you reduce the stigma on the person, too, the, the addict themselves who's feeling bad about themselves, who, who probably buys into some of this as well, that it was my sure. fault, I was stupid, I did this, I did that, I'm still doing it, I can't stop. Yeah. But if they realize and they understand this is, this is, there's something going on in my brain, it's chemical, reduce that stigma, then people feel supported in their community and they can go in and get help and get treatment. Yes, absolutely. Okay. You know, one of one of the one of the most um, powerful uh, experiences for a substance user that sends them back to, to ongoing drug use is this deepening sense of shame. You know, when, I, when somebody first starts using, there may be some negative consequences they experience at first. I, I lied to my boss because I wasn't feeling good to come into work, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, I've been lying to my loved one and sneaking out and doing something. And those pile up over time. Mm-hmm. But as you start getting into heavier negative consequences like legal problems, uh, real relational problems, um, you're starting to have physical complications, it creates a whole nother layer of negative consequences that most people don't understand. And it has more to do with how the the substance user sees themselves. Mm-hmm. Gosh, if I really was a good person, I wouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. If I really loved them, mm-hmm. I wouldn't. What's wrong with me? How come I can't do anything right? How come nobody loves me? Mm-hmm. And so you've got a person who was already feeling low in that regard. And then our traditional strategy to address this is just to punish them more, mm-hmm. which compounds that. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes the very thing that drives the next drug use. And this is a vicious cycle Again, I just want to say I get I get the need to want to lash lash out mm-hmm. when I've been hurt, mm-hmm. but it's not working, and it's only reinforcing the addiction in most cases. Mm-hmm. 
So this is a sea change. Yeah. It's a sea change in the way that we've dealt with addiction, uh, which has been traditionally to try and stop the flow of drugs and to, to punish the addict for making bad choices. This is a sea change into this person is sick and we want to help them. Here's harm reduction strategies until we can get them into treatment right. and treatment to to help them become productive citizens again. Correct. And there is there's there are wait lists for substance abuse all over the place. And so this requires another additional component, like a response as well, is if we want people to get help and people want to get help, we don't have treatment on demand around the country. We generally don't, unless right. you can afford to pay for it. Right. And most people can't. Right. And so we've had to implement this kind of middle of the road thing. Somebody's motivated. Right. How do we keep them alive? Long How do enough? we keep them alive? Give them naloxone. Right. Yep. A harm reduction strategy, which includes, you know, not using a loan, not locking the doors Correct. when you use, using, you know, clean syringes and things yes. like that. And keep naloxone on hand because yes. you don't know what you get when you get street drugs. You, you know. It, and can I just say this for the naysayers? Is that that's actually more cost effective? The harm reduction? The harm reduction strategies are more cost-effective than not giving them the tools they need to reduce harm because mm-hmm. we'll end up paying for that in the long run as mm-hmm. well. Right. And that's more costly to the average citizen. Interesting. Well, Chris, is there anything you want to add? Anything we haven't talked about? Well, there's so much more that we could talk about. <laughs> we need two or three more podcasts probably, to do that. Probably, and we might, yeah. Yes. Well, well thank, you thank you for joining us me. today. Yeah. Yeah. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of... Uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.